This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. Now, Sarah, I, I hope that you've, I don't know, taken your vitamins lately, maybe have a, have a stress ball, some, some comfortable clothing on right this now. This is making me very concerned. What are we talking I, about this week? I, I don't know. I just, after Cronenberg week last week, I just, I'm worried that's not going to get a whole lot better. It's going to be all haunted murder basements and post-apocalyptic dystopias. Oh man, I guess I better start training. Time to get good at push-ups again, I, guess, I suppose. Well, I hope that you're good at them because I'm sure not. Uh, Listeners, we have quite an episode ahead of you. Uh, Varying degrees of bleakness, but first up, we're going to be talking about Scott Derrickson's new horror thriller, The Black Phone. And then after that, we will be pivoting to the distant future and Hayao Miyazaki's Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. I'm hopeful, at least, that Nausicaa won't be quite so bleak as the Black Phone. I mean, how bleak are we talking? Like, I feel like toxic jungles taking over the entire Earth might be a little dark. Oh, man. Now I'm going to have to go get my vitamins. That's all coming up on episode 339 of Seeing and Believing. Would you like to see a magic trick? Yeah. really starting to like you, Finny. I almost let you go. So we're here on episode 339 of Seeing and Believing, and I don't know if this is a mea culpa exactly, but we do have to kind of call it the 300-pound girl in the room that we're not going to be reviewing the new season of Stranger Things on the on the podcast. Nope. Where I feel like we should just be upfront about that right away. Mm-hmm. Um, so sorry, any, any super fans of Stranger Things out there, but we do have a couple of movies about resourceful teens in trouble. Mm-hmm. So, you know... Uh, Maybe that'll make it up to them a little bit. It meshes, for sure. Like, I I feel like there's some commonalities in there. A little bit of 70s nostalgia, not really 80s nostalgia, at least in one of the movies we'll be talking about. Yeah, that's uh, Scott Derrickson's Black Phone, which is coming up in a second. We're also going to be talking about another Hayao Miyazaki movie. Sarah's giving me a crash course in the gaps in my Miyazaki knowledge. Um, So we're going to be talking about Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind in the watch list segment uh, in a little bit. But we'll start with the black phone to kick things off. So like I said, this is the new film from director Scott Derrickson. It's about a shy but clever 13-year-old boy named Finney Shaw, played by newcomer Mason Thames, who is abducted by a sadistic killer and trapped in a soundproof basement where screaming is of little use. 
When a disconnected phone on the wall begins to ring, Finney discovers that he can hear the voices of the killer's previous victims, and they are dead set on making sure that what happened to them doesn't happen to Finney. So, uh, you know, obviously, like like I said, this is a Scott Derrickson film. He's uh, best known, at least for among horror fans, for his film uh, Sinister. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is uh, something that's less supernatural and more... Uh, grounded than that film. It's also based on a short story by Joe Hill, also known as the the son of Stephen King. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it's definitely got that pedigree going for it as well. So I guess to get us started, Sarah, uh, let's just uh, get your take on you know how you think this this new film works uh, as a as a thriller slash horror film, and uh, do you think that Derrickson's unique sensibilities? Uh, bring anything to that table. So here's where I fess up and say I haven't seen a ton of Scott Derrickson films, so maybe something to catch up on a little bit later on down the line. Um, But I don't know, as a thriller horror, I feel like it works as like a mood piece or a tone piece, but I didn't really feel too much of the tension except in the scenes where Finney is like on the phone with somebody else. Everything else, all of the inter-character interactions between like flesh and blood characters, everything just kind of felt a little bit flat to me, um, which was really kind of a bummer because I was expecting a little bit more fireworks. Like this has been kind of touted as like Ethan Hawke's most scary role ever. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really feel that. So I don't know, Kevin, did you feel that kind of like, d- did you get something out of this? Uh, I did get something out of it. I mean, I, I'm... On balance, pretty negative about this film uh, as well. I think there's okay. some nice things going on around the edges, which we can maybe get into. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that it it entirely works, and I don't think it really ever gets better than its its prologue and the opening credit sequence. Mm-hmm. So it opens on a, a baseball game, and it's kind of you know it's set in you know the late '70s, so it is kind of almost like a Stranger Things nostalgia trip in a lot of ways. You know, you've got Little League, you've got a retro song playing on the soundtrack. You've got kind of, it's very much intended to evoke an attachment to certain uh, time in, in America's past. Um, and the way that that sequence culminates with a fade to black as Ethan Hawke's grabber, the, mm-hmm. the, the killer of the film, um, uh, as he claims is the first victim that we see mm-hmm. in, in the film. And I think that that's, it's a strong opening. And then it kind of goes into um, this credit sequence with discordant soundtrack, um, which I think really put me in mind of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the, hmm. the opening to that film. Just, again, the the soundscape, the kind of feel that we're really going to be going into some dark places with this film. And... I, I think that that's very intentional on Derrickson's part. He even name checks the Texas Chainsaw Massacre at some point uh, in dialogue early in the film. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of primed me to be ready for sort of maybe a suburban take on that kind of that kind of film where it's maybe not as um, downright grody as, <laughs> as that film is. Uh, but it definitely seemed like it was willing to go into some dark places and kind of do what I I mean I hate to bring this up just because Joe Hill is Stephen King's son but it does make me think a lot of Stephen King in the way King also likes to explore sort of the 
the squirmy evil lurking just beneath the surface of mm. small towns. Like that's something that's been his stock and trade ever since it, if not before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, I was hopeful based on that opening that the film would take us to those kinds of places. And it kind of, I don't know. I think it mostly pulls its punches and I think that's really disappointing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I completely agree with you. It almost felt like it was sort of head faking a little bit towards being, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre or something else. It's funny that opening credit sequence actually made me think of the opening credits of Malignant, which isn't a Blumhouse production. It's, mm-hmm. I think it's New Line Cinema, um, but kind of a very similar style of ripped from the headlines. Like here's something completely fantastical that's happening, but we're going to pretend that it's happening in the real world anyway, with a lot of like very, very jarring camera motions and, and overlays and stuff that actually kind of brought me out of the film. Didn't make me think <laughs> of Texas Chainsaw at all, which is funny because I think it was probably on purpose because at one point, some of the characters even mentioned the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and say like, hey, I saw this in the theaters. This is the greatest movie ever. And this movie, I think this movie pulls its punches in a way that like, I don't know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre doesn't do Definitely that. Definitely doesn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, And I think part of it is the subject matter. Like, the inciting incident is that there is this guy out here who's, like, grabbing kids off the street and kidnapping them. And that is horrifying. And the movie sort of dances around just how horrifying that is. We don't see anything, which is great. Definitely okay with that. But I think that instead of ramping up the tension of this child is in danger and there is a man who is menacing him in his basement... Um, and saying, like, maybe the movie is actually going to, I don't know, do harm to a child or show harm to a child. It just kind of has these two characters facing off against each other across, like, long distances across a room. Feels very static to me. And that kind of felt like a lot of the development in the movie. Like, the main character, Finney, is just stuck in this basement, at the basically at the bottom of a hole, um, kind of Silence of the Lambs-like almost, where he's trying to get out but doesn't really have all of the resources or the ability to get out that he needs to. And the grabber who's menacing him is just standing on the other side of that door, on the top end of that hole, just waiting for this kid to do something. Like, there's no actual menace here. And so I'm, I'm a little bit mystified by the claims that Ethan Hawke is doing his scariest role to date because most of the acting that's in the movie that he's doing is kind of done for him by the costuming. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a a development that also kind of baffles me a little bit because the mask isn't present in the short story at all. It feels like it was added to add a little bit of additional spice and color. And it really just sort of defanged the whole story for me. I've got a, I've got a crackpot theory about the mask that that we'll get into a second, because I think it actually does. It, it is purposeful. And I think there's, I, I, it was one of the, few elements of this film that I think is a positive addition by by Derrickson. Hmm. Um, but to get back to your comment about the the menace, I, I don't know if it's so much that the menace is absent from this film so much as it's just, it feels very abstracted. Hmm. Um, we never really, like you said, we don't really see the grabber do anything very violent. He's kind of creepy, but he doesn't seem... He doesn't seem like the sort of psychopath that would terrify you. You know, it doesn't seem like this is a man who ostensibly kills children, Mm -hmm. yet he just kind of seems just like almost like a garden variety creep. And which, again, like we don't need to see a lot of horrible things on screen. Not saying that all like explicit violence against children. Not interested in seeing that. Mm -hmm. But 
there does need to be something that kind of punches us in the gut <laughs> with with this film. And I, it doesn't feel like it's a film that's woefully lacking in gut punches. And I know that Derrickson, it's not that Derrickson doesn't have the stomach for this, because I think Sinister is a very, in a lot of ways, it's a very nasty horror film. Like it's mm. the, the kinds of images that he puts on screen in that film do disturb and do stick with you. So it's kind of inexplicable to me that that kind of filmmaking acumen doesn't find its way into this story at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, th- I think you're right about like the menace being abstracted. Um, so much of the time while I was watching, I kept thinking there's another there's going to be another clue or another development that's going to get this kid like to another step towards where he needs to go, which is to escape. And Finney's kind of a passive character and that he's sort he's of just waiting passive. for this this phone to start ringing and for one of the kids who's been murdered before him to give him another clue or another tool or something to kind of help him on his way out. Kind of reminded me of like those point and click puzzle like escape room games, like the flash games that were popular like 10, 15 years ago. Um And I love those, but those work because you are actually supplying a lot of the like tension and fear in your own head as you're working through that sort of puzzle game. And it's also doubly frustrating because Finney is a passive character. And I think that that's okay on a certain level because like his only motivation is to escape and he does try to do that. But I think that you can do passive characters who want to escape bad situations much better than they are done in this movie. I was thinking specifically of... Um, the adaptation of Misery, which mm. features an incredibly passive character who's who's literally bedridden for most of the movie, and yet there is a lot of sort of cat and mouse tension um, between the two characters in in that film that you just don't quite get here. And I don't know if it's because there is that age gap between Finney and the Grabber, or if there's something else going on, but it it just didn't ever really feel like there was a lot of tension between these two characters, other than just. I've captured you and I want to escape and those being diametrically opposed. Like there's no mind games here. I love that you bring up misery. That that hadn't occurred to me at all, but you're 100% bang on that misery does right what a, a lot of what this film does wrong. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's just, it has to do with the, just the, the storytelling structure of the black phone is very odd because the, so the the uh, the black phone of the title is this you know it's this disconnected phone on the wall and every now and then it rings for for no apparent reason and when Finney picks it up he hears the voice of one of the grabber's previous victims and the victim tells uh, Finney a little bit about himself or herself and uh, you know mentions some piece of information that Finney can use to try to escape. But the weird thing about that device is that each one of the pieces of information he gets is kind of disconnected. Like he, one of them says, Literally. try digging through the floor. Another one says, try getting out through a window. Another one gives him a, some sort of lock combination. Mm-hmm. And he tries each of those in succession. But there's no sense of uh, each of those attempts kind of building on one another. They all come together in the climax. Mm-hmm. But there's no like kind of building momentum until we get to the climax. So it kind of feels very monotonous. Contrast that with Misery, where James Kahn's character in that film is constantly trying to escape and constantly trying to think of different ways that he can do that, given his limitations. Mm -hmm. And that is what makes Misery such a, a 
an absorbing ride is because he can't do very much, but he's still a very he's very active in his attempts to resolve his situation. And I think that's something that is just completely missing from this film. There's just Finney is not an active character and it doesn't even seem like we're learning a whole lot about him as a person because he kind of picks up a phone, hears some information and then he goes and does it. Mm-hmm. But there's no the way that that information acts upon him or the way he goes about putting into action is just very generic. He does do a few creative things, I think, without the prompting of the phone. And so I think maybe maybe this is a little bit of missing connective tissue within the movie is that it doesn't really demonstrate his creativity beforehand because he's the one who is able to take all of those disparate little pieces and put them together in order to stage his escape. Um, But you don't really get any hints or clues as to like why or how he would be able to put together that information much in the runtime leading up to that climax which i I just found deeply disappointing just because i you're right uh, the only character development we get from finney is he's free and then he's captured and then he's free again and there there really isn't much of a character arc or anything that's really quite learned the movie does some lip service towards you need to learn how to stand up for yourself son because he's also like bullied at school but that doesn't really seem like a reasonable moral to apply to a movie (laughs) about a kid who's been trapped in a basement by a a killer (laughs) it's it's a huge problem of scale like the 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 kind of story where finney just has to learn to stick up for himself and be confident and kind of almost have a coming of age experience is not the sort of film that can expect us to take a story about a serial child murder all that seriously yeah and i was wondering for much of the runtime like what is the point of this movie why are we telling this particular story why are we watching this particular story like what's what's going on here i don't necessarily want a moral from a story like this i i I don't think that it's always necessary but i still was trying to figure out what the point was and i think some of it comes from finney's little sister gwenny who um has the ability to dream about what's going on around her. She's kind of got like sort of the shining. She, she has the shine. She has the shining. And there are a couple of moments in the film where she is basically the one who has all of that power and agency to put all of these pieces together from the outside because she's trying desperately to find her brother. And the way that she goes about this is she can't control when she dreams, but Um, she sort of has this ritual where she'll pull out her dollhouse and she'll pull out a lot of different crosses and crucifixes and and symbols and she'll pray and say like, Jesus, I need your help. I I need a dream so that I can figure out where, where my brother is. And at one point, just completely exasperated, um, she goes to her room and she says a prayer where she, she essentially swears at Jesus. And that was the piece of the movie where I really felt like this is the most true thing because it felt like the movie was kind of trying to get at this question of theodicy like why do bad things happen to little kids why do we feel powerless in in the face of something like that and unfortunately the movie didn't really go anywhere after that unfortunately but like that outburst of jesus what on earth is going on like i did truly love that because it felt very genuine to me that's that's one of the the nice touches around the edges that i that i mentioned right at the beginning that i think worked for me i think derrickson is up to something with, I mean, anytime you have a character like, like literally line up uh, Christian iconography and pray out loud to Jesus, like you, you know, that's not just idle 
uh, well, I guess it could be idle invocation of Christian tropes, but not for Derrickson, who by all accounts is, is, is a believer himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did like how the, one of the few times where I kind of felt like it clicked is close to the beginning of Finney's imprisonment. He kind of, he's in the basement. He kind of feels like I'm stuck down here. I'm you know soundproofed. I can't scream. I can't, you know, break out. It's hopeless. I'm going to die down here. And he, he lies down on the mattress and just essentially succumbs to despair. Mm-hmm. And that's the first time that the black phone rings. Mm. And the black phone specifically seems to ring as a consequence of Gwenny's prayers. Hmm. And I found that to be a really compelling thread to introduce into what otherwise could be kind of a more rote story. Like, oh, this is this is going to be very interesting to marry kind of the supernatural um, ghost story uh, because the, the, haunt, the black phone is essentially haunted, to marry that with uh, the idea of how you know, God can speak to us in any, you know, in any number of surprising ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, We just have to listen. Um, And I think that's also borne out by the fact that uh, the grabber, uh, the mask that he wears is a Satan mask. It's, Mm -hmm. It's got the horns. It's got this, this diabolical smile. And what's telling about the grabber is that um, part of the game he plays with his victims is he, he, um, entices them to try to escape and then when they try to escape he he catches them and punishes them and he calls them naughty and that's perhaps uh derrickson maybe playing into the idea of satan as an accuser as somebody who Mm. sets us up to fail and then and then uh enacts punishment on us for that Mm. and i i found that to be interesting i don't it it kind of ends up being half-baked in the end because after it's introduced with the game that the grabber is playing it never really gets returned to and by the climax it's just sort of a rote you know there's it's it's finney versus the grabber and one of them is is you know it's it's a fight essentially (laughs) which is fine and 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 more becomes about finney learning to stick up for himself and it becomes sort of more like a Stranger Things-esque kind of coming of age through a horrific experience thing, which I think is, number one, it's kind of a gross note to end the movie on, mm-hmm. I think. It's kind of offensive. Yeah. Um, but also it's deeply disappointing because I do think those spiritual themes are there and they're there intentionally. They're just not really followed up on. Yeah, it's funny. I didn't actually make the connection between Gwenny's prayers and the black phone ringing. So that's a really good point. Um I do find it deeply interesting that all of the kids who are haunting the black phone aren't really necessarily interested in helping Finney. They're just interested in getting like getting revenge on the grabber. I also found it really interesting that all of the supernatural elements are they're scary on a certain level, um, but they're also very much allied with the good, which I appreciated very much. I don't think I've seen a movie with like this kind of quite this this level of we're going to align this thing that is traditionally scary and would normally be a source of menace for the protagonist to be something that um is actually a, a source of aid so that piece of reversal i think i i did appreciate a little bit more it's also basically the main point of the short story so i don't know how much credit we can give to scott derrickson <laughs> i, I mean one. i i haven't read the short story myself but i have so i have so many problems with the short story um it is a little bit more succinct than the movie. So m- 
quite a bit, quite a lot of the movie is putting together connective tissue between references in the short story, but the short story takes place for the most part, just in the basement. Um, and it ends with a final confrontation and a very memorable piece of dialogue that does appear in the movie. I won't spoil it here. Um, but the movie sort of takes that, that, climax and sort of stretches it out i think a little bit past its utility where the short story does end quite effectively the short story also does spend a little bit of time with gwenny like in her search for finney but other than that the entire short story just takes place down in this basement with this kid just trying to figure out how how to get out um the short story is also like it it uses some some gross characterization for the grabber that I really didn't appreciate. It kind of equates being fat with being immoral, which I think is just completely unconscionable. Like Mm. it it basically just characterizes the grabber as just being he's gross specifically because he's fat and he's evil because of that as well. And that just, that's something that really didn't sit right with me. And that kind of mean attitude sort of permeates the rest of the story in a way that just completely turned me off to it basically from page one. Um, this movie does not play on that trope at the very least. So I will give them points for that. (laughs) I'm going to deduct points right back though, uh, with the depiction of the, the father character in, Mm. in this film, uh, played by Jeremy Davies, which I go, I go back and forth on Jeremy Davies as an, as an actor. I think that in the right role, he can be very compelling Mm -hmm. in the wrong role. He can be, very bad (laughs) and i think this is unfortunately Mm. one of the latter and i think again this it's a weird thing where it seems like derrickson is trying to suggest some sort of parallel between uh the father's abusiveness and the grabber's abusiveness they both use a belt to uh beat on children Mm -hmm. um and they they both seem to have an issue with um uh placing blame where it doesn't belong Mm. um but the weird thing about (laughs) the father character is that kind of about halfway through the film he switches from being uh somebody who really is seems like he's being characterized as a very awful abuser Mm -hmm. and he kind of is is presented in much more sympathetic light which again i can imagine a movie making that move i can't imagine a movie in which we see Jeremy Davies really just laying into a little girl with a belt. Mm-hmm. I I can't make that the leap that this movie is asking me to make there. And again, I, I think that's just sort of symptomatic of the film as a whole. So just it, there's some storytelling instincts that are just really going wrong. here. Yeah. And I think a lot of those instincts are the things that were put together as that connective tissue between the plot points and the, in the short story and for whatever reason, like they just don't ever fully quite cohere. Um, I don't know. I, I really didn't like the short story and all of the parts of the movie that I really did like were from the short story. If, if that gives you like, I don't know, a picture of how I felt about the experience of watching this movie and then holding it up in, in my head to the story that it's based on. Well, that, that is our review of The Black Phone. Uh, if any uh, Derrickson fans are out there uh, pulling their hair out, wondering how we can do uh, The Black Phone so dirty, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Uh, make your defense of this film. Uh, we always love to hear people tell us that we're wrong mm-hmm. on the air, uh, almost as much as we like telling, hearing people tell us that we're right. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go anywhere. We're going to uh, share some of our listener comments and then get into the watch list up in a second. 
Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So we're going to take a little bit of a break now for the conversation, the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. I just mentioned that we like it when you tell us that we're we're wrong in the show. I think that makes for, for some really good thought-provoking emails and, and tweets to read. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're going to, you know, I don't know that we really have any of those kinds of feedback to, to share this week. Not this time. So. Darn. I guess we're just going to have to read what we got. We actually got a lot. So thanks to everyone who, who wrote in. We uh, did get a recommendation from Ron Sturry who said wrote in to say, just a suggestion for a new release on Apple TV. Cha-Cha Real Smooth has one of the stupidest titles I've heard in a while. <laughs> but it turned out to be a very unpredictable and pleasant romantic comedy with a completely unpredictable ending and some serious gravitas. Cooper Rafe is, I think, a star in the making. Dakota Johnson is also a star in the making. So, I mean... I, Dakota Johnson might arguably already be a made star, but I, I believe she counts as a made star. But honestly, I'll watch just about anything with her in it. I, I do love J- Dakota Johnson quite a bit. Uh, we also heard from Andrew Bodenbach, who who wrote in to let us know that he'd been playing some catch up on some past episodes, and he had a chance to listen to our review of the Batman from Days of Yore. Uh, he. Andrew mentions that he's very interested in how director Matt Reeves uses uh, biblical stories for different ends in his movies. He mentions how War for the Planet of the Apes is essentially a remake of the Ten Commandments. And he uh, mentions also that in the Batman, he was very interested in the climax of that film, which evokes the flood. Mm -hmm. Andrew writes, it's kind of like if Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver was able to summon the rain he wished would come, which also makes the Batman a better Scorsese homage than Joker. Joker, but I'm not here to take sideswipes at Joker. <laughs> Please do continue to take sideswipes at Joker. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't argue with that. Uh, Andrew goes on to say, I don't know if I have any insightful takes on Reeves using these biblical stories, but I think it's interesting that he's made two huge budget movies in a row that have a concluding action sequence that draws on the Bible. So that's really thought provoking. I hadn't made that connection with War of the Planet of the Apes, but I think Andrew might be onto something there. It's definitely a good connection there. We also heard from Lindsay Dunn, who reached out to say that Crimes of the Future was such an odd movie. Completely agree with you there. (laughs) Can't argue with that either. Uh, We discussed that on last week's episode. Um, And Lindsay also said that she appreciated Sarah, that's me, uh, saying it was gentler than she expected. Um, She expected to be horrified and shocked, but she felt very little, almost like she was one of the people in the world. It wasn't that shocking, not sexy, and didn't really feel any emotion from those characters. Um, And she goes on to say that it's interesting that in this vision of um, a future world, our refined culture turns to assaults on the body as entertainment, almost like an alternate form of the gladiator games, which I think is a really good insight there. Yeah, I hadn't made that connection with the Colosseum, but that's a really good thought. Thanks for writing in, Lindsay. Definitely. We also heard back from quite a lot of you uh, for our Sunday question on Twitter. I like to pose just questions that are sort of loosely connected to whatever it is that we're going to be talking about on the upcoming week. So thank you to everybody who wrote in. I'm not going to be able to get to every single one of these titles, but I liked 
a lot of these uh, suggestions. So we asked, um, with the movies that we're going to be reviewing this upcoming week, The Black Phone and Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, um, we wanted to know, what's your favorite movie with a young protagonist? Um, so we, again, we heard from quite a few people. Thank you all so much for, for writing in. Nate Fleming um, just responded with the poster for The Secret of Kells, which I think is just a fantastic pick. Mm-hmm. Um, one that I forget about and then I remember and it just makes me happy that it's a movie that exists in the world. It's just absolutely wonderful. Um, Christy Olson replied with a lot of gifts from wonderful movies. So if you are on Twitter, um, come check us out on See Believe Pod and then also take a look at the responses to that latest tweet. Um, but she picked quite a few, including The Florida Project and A Little Princess, um, which probably, I don't know, they, they feel pretty diametrically opposed to me personally, tone-wise, but but very, very good picks there. Gosh, The Florida Project is so good. Have you seen The Florida Project? I have seen The Florida oh, Project. Okay, darn. Yeah. I, was gonna, I was hoping maybe I can get a, get that in on the watch list segment. Yeah, but. no, I, I like Sean Baker's movies, so right. I, I do like The Florida Project. Um, and then finally, Christian Hammaker also responded with um, an answer decades in the making, a tie between Steven Spielberg's Empire of the Sun and Steven Soderbergh's King of the Hill. Hmm. But I wonder if my favorite movie of last year, Celine Sciamma's Petite Mama, might now deserve the crown. Time will tell. I mean, I love Petite Maman. I think it's fantastic. It's wonderful. I just got the chance to catch up with it about a month or so ago, and it's it's easily one of my favorite movies I've seen all year. Um, so, Kevin, I was also wondering, do you have a favorite movie starring a young protagonist? I, I not only have a favorite movie star, starring a young protagonist, it might be my if it might be my number one personal favorite of all time. Ooh, um, they're one and the same. That would probably be. Uh, pan's labyrinth Ugh. i think it's it's a tremendous film and i think ophelia in that film is just such she's a you know an incredible character a great performance from the from the actress and just i don't know incredible looking movie as well like guillermo mm. del toro i i don't want to live in the world of pan's labyrinth by any stretch but i would like to live just sort of in those film frames sort of on the edge maybe and just kind kind of watching what's going on terrific terrific movie it's an enchanting film so i i guess i'll turn the the question right back around on you uh, what's your uh favorite film with a child or young person protagonist uh we're going to be talking about it in a couple of minutes here it's hayao miyazaki's nausicaa of the valley of the wind i like that segue let's get to it When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now it is time for the Watchlist segment. This is the part of the show where one host picks a film that the other host has not seen, makes them watch it, and then we talk about it together. So, Sarah, for this week's segment, you picked Hayao Miyazaki's Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Mm -hmm. This is one of Hayao Miyazaki's early films and arguably the first one that is recognizably a quote-unquote Miyazaki film Mm -hmm. in its storytelling style and its thematic preoccupations. Mm -hmm. It's set in a post-apocalyptic Earth, a millennium after a planet-spanning war wiped out civilization and led to giant insects and toxic jungles dominating the world. 
Nausicaa is a noblewoman in one of the few scraps of society left hanging on and finds herself caught between an imperialist power that wants to revive the super weapons of the past and the dangerous insects that could stampede at any time and level the fragile home that she's built with her comrades. So uh, at the beginning of the episode, I mentioned uh, the phrase uh, resourceful teens in trouble as sort Mm -hmm. of a lodestone for this episode uh but maybe talk about that a little bit more why did you pick nausicaa for this watch list segment oh man um this is my favorite miyazaki movie and i recognize that like it's probably not necessarily his best movie it's definitely not his most widely celebrated movies um but it's got a lot of the seeds of the greatness that's going to come in the future and it's very definitely like a movie that is taking everything that Miyazaki is interested in and just sort of throwing it all out there in a go for broke. This is my first movie that I get to write and direct, and I don't know if I'm going to get another one. So I'm just going to throw it all at the wall and see what sticks. And so much of it sticks. And a lot of that has to do with the character of Nausicaa, who really just anchors the entire story and plot. She is resourceful. She is smart. She is kind. Um, And she's willing to make a principal stand even when it is not necessarily the easiest thing to do, but when she knows that it's the right thing to do. And the movie is definitely not a subtle movie, but it doesn't feel quite preachy about her character. And that's one of the things that really endears me to her is that she's she just happens to be a principled young woman. And I just I adore that. So I'm I'm curious to know, did did Nausicaa work for you um, or was this a mess? Oh, no, it, it works for me. Absolutely. I, this is your two for two on the Miyazaki picks for, for this segment. I can't take credit for that. That's all on Miyazaki. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fair enough. But I'm I'm really glad that you shared this film with me. I I think what I really liked about this film is it's just I love starting up a film and immediately being sucked into the world that it's creating for me mm-hmm. and nausicaa i i feel like miyazaki's vision for this post-apocalyptic future is so sharply realized that i had no trouble just falling into this and getting invested to it from from the word go i mean it's got kind of the archetypal sort of enchantment that you you find in you know the star wars a new hope Mm-hmm. or the lord of the rings you know like it's just it's very i i don't think this film quite reaches the maybe the level of those films but i think it's it's still very good and it's a real great advertisement for what animation makes possible mm-hmm. especially when this film was made in the 80s a live action film could not even approximate the sorts of images we see the you know the giant insects the the dangerous jungle, the spores, the 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 aerial dog fights, all of that is stuff that could never have been seen unless it were animated. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Hayao Miyazaki, number one, had those images in his head, and number two, marshaled all of his filmmaking powers and his collaborators' powers to literalize that on screen for us is i i think really impressive and i don't know i liked it a lot good wonderful that makes me so happy because this is (laughs) this is literally one of my all-time favorite movies it's a movie that i just i come back to and usually when i've come back to it it's been a couple of years and i need to sort of just remind myself that movies are are able to do this sort of storytelling in this sort of world building and i think you really hit on something important with like the care and precision of that world building because there's so much of it here 
And a lot of it is the kind of world building that tells you this is this is something that is completely unlike the world that we live in, but it's not going to call attention to itself in quite a like, hey, look at this one weird thing that is completely different from what we do in our society today. Isn't that strange? It's just this happens to be a society of people where there's a kingdom that is completely I don't know, working off wind power and windmills. And then there are other like much more warlike kingdoms elsewhere. And you can kind of tell the difference between all of them by the way that they dress and the way that they address each other. Um, but the movie doesn't spend any time like trying to underline those differences. It just presents them to you and, and trusts that the viewers are smart enough to be able to understand what's going on. Um, and I just, I love that. And I especially love the level of detail and attention that is spent on the backgrounds like um i think the last the last miyazaki movie we talked about was kiki's delivery service and there's a moment in that movie where kiki comes across a painting and the camera just does a nice long slow pan over this painting and lets you just sort of revel in those details and a lot of the establishing shots in nausicaa are doing something kind of similar to this where a character will just enter a new scene and the camera will pan around them and it'll take its sweet time doing so it doesn't really ever feel rushed. It really feels like you're just sort of resting in that movie and you're able to look and see like all of these different little details that were all hand drawn or hand painted. And they may be details that like you didn't notice three or four times before watching this, but you'll notice them now. And they're just going to sit there and they're going to wait to be discovered. And I, I think that's one of the things that makes this movie just so special. The visuals are so good in this film that it, it, it leads to the one quibble I have with it, which is that I the, the visuals are so powerful that I feel like a lot of the time the dialogue that Miyazaki has written for his characters underline things that don't need underlining because we, mm. we see it all in front of us. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there, there are moments where we just uh, the visual storytelling is so precise. And then a, a character sort of unnecessarily says, oh, this is happening. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't I don't need you to say that it's. It's perfect the way it is, uh, which again, that's a quibble, and it's it kind of points up the the larger virtue of the film, which is that precise visual storytelling, mm-hmm. and the ways that he especially uses color yes. to to convey um, emotion and atmosphere. Uh, I think, of course, the uh, the ohm creatures. There are these these giant insects. They're the ones that, when they stampede, they can level an entire city. And when they're enraged, their eyes are just this this blood red. Mm-hmm. And when they're dormant, it's this pale blue. And the different times in which those colors change, um, the ways in which when they are uh, grouped together, they create kind of a canvas of one or the other color. And the way in which uh, Nausicaa's clothing itself also changes color due to various plot-related machinations to reflect that, hmm. I think is very interesting and very subtle work, especially for a film that in in it could easily just be dismissed as like, you know, a kid's first environmental story, but it's it's so much more subtle and richer than that. Yeah, yeah. And I do agree with you that like there are parts where the dialogue is a little bit clunky. I, I, I'm thinking especially of the scene where we first meet Nausicaa and she's wandering around the toxic jungle and she sort of just says out loud to herself, like, just imagine five minutes without a mask and I'd be dead because all of these spores could could potentially kill me. But I think that those moments are sort of offset by the moments of just utter quiet where Miyazaki does let the camera do its work 
um, you do get a little bit of that dialogue, but then you also get scenes where Nausicaa is just walking through the forest or she's laying down and watching those spores fall down upon her almost like a blanket. Um, and you understand completely that she is comfortable in this world and in this particular environment in a way that probably nobody else around her is. And she is also most completely herself in this environment. And I do appreciate that they, the, the characterization is good enough that usually the clunky dialogue is more about plot exposition than it is about telling you about what those characters' motivations are. Yeah. The, um, the way that Nausicaa is very clearly again and again characterized as somebody who cares about about pacifism about nonviolence. Mm-hmm. um i think is really it's very good um and i'm, I'm trying to think of the best way to to say this but i think that it's it's really easy to present a, a person who is who's very committed to a certain ideal as sort of being uh, kind of a, a a plaster saint, you know, somebody who is who's just almost untouchable hmm. to, by either human emotion or or by just like petty concerns. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think this is isn't true just of Nausicaa. It's true of a lot of Miyazaki characters, but of Nausicaa specifically, she's so committed to not hurting others that even when she's literally like in a dog fight and somebody's trying to machine gun her, mm-hmm. she's like, no, don't, don't shoot them. <laughs> yeah. And in the moment you, you, you know, you're, you're just like, what's wrong with you? You are being <laughs> shot at. But I think that that, that kind of almost, um, unrealistic fanatical devotion to her ideals is, is part of what makes her so endearing. Mm-hmm. And it's also what makes the few moments where she does, edge closer to breaking her code of nonviolence that much more powerful when she does you know heft a machine gun and sort of fire it at the feet of some uncooperative bad guys yeah like that you know that that's like um standard you know hero hero action 101 like you know uh shooting a gun to sort of intimidate somebody. We've seen that movies a thousand times. When Nausicaa does it, it means something completely different because of the way that she's been characterized for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's also crucial that she ends up going right up to that point of violence before she makes that decision of no more killing, like this has to stop. Like there's this sort of refrain of no more killing, no more violence, like quit trying to burn down this jungle. Um, and I think the thing that really wins me over to her character is that she isn't perfect and she is allowed to make mistakes and she makes some pretty grave ones. Like she straight up kills a bunch of guys um, right at the beginning of the movie. And then she realizes what she's done. And I, I suspect that the movie doesn't actually tell you this, but I suspect that part of her motivation in being so fanatical about her pacifism, I think it's the right decision on her part, but I think part of it is also she's, maybe sort of trying to atone for what she's done. And she knows Mm. that she can't make that particular thing right, but she can stop other people from making that same mistake. And I just, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. The, I also appreciate how it's, it's not just she, the, the audience isn't permitted access only to the, the message of nonviolence only through her character. Mm. We're also made to really desire, desire it ourselves when the, uh, the super weapon eventually shows up. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, the, 
the society that Nausicaa is a part of is, you know, very peaceful, kind of agrarian society in this in this valley of the wind. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, they've survived for as long as they have because there's a wind kind of blowing the spores away from them so they don't have to worry about being poisoned. Um, there are other societies in this world that are much more warlike that are essentially facing down the, the threat of the toxic jungle and the insects with only... Uh, force to sort of be the tool that they fight it, beat it back with. And one of them, one, one of these societies shows up in the Valley of the Wind at one point and they uh, bring along a, what was called a, a giant warrior. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the, the, these giant warriors are supposedly the super weapons that are responsible for the earth essentially being destroyed uh, a thousand years ago. And there's one more left this uh, warlike society has found it and they want to activate it and, and use it against the, the insects. And when that giant warrior that has been incubating for the court for the entire film finally makes its appearance at the climax, it's not just, it's not just bad. Like you you intellectually understand like, Oh, this nuclear weapon allegory is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It's horrifying. Yes. And I, again, like that's, the imagery that Miyazaki dreamed up for that giant warrior is, I mean, if I'd seen it as a kid, it would have given me nightmares. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, 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 I mean, it is a giant. It's, it's huge. But this particular giant warrior is also not fully formed yet. Like it's literally falling apart as it's crawling across the terrain. And I think that's such an elegant way of getting at how this warlike society's desire to destroy the bugs and the toxic jungle around them is such a half-baked plan that even their weapons are are kind of half-baked in a way um and that's just one of those like elegant touches where you see it and it makes perfect sense and then also it's just a horrifying sight and like you you don't need to extrapolate that additional meaning on top of it you know It, it can kind of be both at once and and i feel like that's one of the i don't know best strengths of Miyazaki movies is that he's he's willing to go there with a visual visual metaphor um but he's also willing to just kind of give you the image itself and then let you make your own meaning of it at the same time yeah and I think an underrated quality of him as a filmmaker is that he knows he's got the uh artistic discipline to know when to go horrific Mm -hmm. and scary and when not to. And I think the the fact that up until this point, it's been, you know, it's been kind of tame for the most part. We, we've seen a little bit of, of violence um, between people, but we haven't seen any anything truly monstrous mm. up to that point. The, the giant insects are threatening, but they're not, they're not nightmarish. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I think the only thing that w- would truly fit that descriptor is the thing that is wholly man-made and that is um, being put to solely violent use. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that I, I think that's really telling. And it's something that if Miyazaki were just sort of going for like, oh, let's make the bugs as scary as possible in order to play up how big of a threat they are. You could understand why somebody would make that storytelling decision, but Miyazaki knows better than that. They're kind of awe-inspiring at the same time. Like you, you can see the picture of like the ohm 
the first one that we see is literally stampeding out of the jungle, chasing somebody else. And you kind of get that sense of fear. But you're right. It is it is more of like an awe rather than this thing is nightmarish. But um, I wonder, like, what do you make of there's there's almost a dream sequence, like almost a nightmare sequence, I think, at one point in, in the middle of the movie where Nausicaa's asleep and she's remembering something that happened to her as a child where she's got one of those baby insects and the people of the valley who are with her find out that she has it and they want to take it away from her. And there's there's a specific image that always strikes me every time I see it where there are human hands sort of reaching mm. out in en masse towards that baby insect. And all of those hands kind of look like the the jointed legs of those insects that are stampeding. Oh. Yeah. So I, I, I was curious to know, like, if you made anything. Of I, I, I hadn't made the, the connection between the, the profusion of human hands and the 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 insects sort of pincers or, 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 or legs. Hmm. But now that I'm thinking back, at that is absolutely a parallelism um, that, that I should have noticed. That's that's really interesting. I, I liked that sequence um, mostly because it it made it so that the the people of the valley of the wind aren't let off the hook either hmm. they they are it would be easy for them to be made out as like they're you know they're just they just want peace man you know <laughs> and, and it's it's these evil uh you know it's this evil warlike people they're the real bad guys but we're you know we're the virtuous agrarian society but that dream sequence shows that um in their fear of the insects there's something deeply disturbing about that the the grasping hands um it's not violent but it's definitely it, it's definitely there's something quintessentially human about wanting to reach out and take something and either kill it or exploit it mm-hmm. in order to make our lives easier and or safer and i liked that the people perpetrating that weren't the the evil baddies with the airships it was the the peaceful agrarian society led by Nausicaa's own father. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and it definitely colors him a little bit differently too, because up until that point, he's just kind of treated as like a good king, and I, I appreciate that it it does that complicating work. So, um, I don't know. It's also not a very subtle movie at the same time. So, no. <laughs> were were there parts of this where that didn't necessarily work for you? Or, I mean, it definitely feels like. Like an early film. It definitely feels like a a filmmaker who hasn't quite learned to to fully trust what the audience will pick up on. Mm. Um, I don't think it's... So I, I think it is a flaw. It's not what I, w- I would call a fatal flaw um, or anything like that. It, it more struck me as a, an integral part of Miyazaki's style that he would come to refine maybe in later films. Like... By pretty much any measure, I would say that you know, Princess Mononoke is a much more uh, refined version of this story and its environmental message and also in the way that it's able to portray nature as both essentially morally neutral hmm. while also being capable of great threat. And um, I think that we see the seeds of that kind of thinking in this film as well. And so even if it's a little bit rough around the edges, I think the 
just the sheer like sensory pleasures of it more than make up for it. That makes me so happy to hear. <laughs> I'm delighted by this. Well, uh, me, that's a, a good note to end on. Like I said, two for two on Miyazaki. Are we going to go for three, three for three? I mean, there's still a lot I haven't seen. Yeah, yeah. It'll just be depending on what we end up pairing the Miyazaki with. But I, I think there's more Miyazaki in our future at some point soon. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, that's our watch list segment. Next week, we are going to be reviewing the A24 film Marcel the Shell with shoes on. We're dialing it back a little bit. Yeah. You know, we, we've had some more intense films on the show. So we're kind of like, go back for something a little bit, throttle it back, go for something a little bit more gentle. Mm-hmm. And to pair with that, I selected uh, Sylvan Chaumet's 2010 film The Illusionist. This is not to be confused with the Ed Norton magician movie from 2006. <laughs> this is uh, another animated film. Uh, it's directed by the um, the same person who uh, directed the Triplets of Belleville, which is probably his, his most well-known work. But this film, I think, is better than the Triplets of Belleville. And it's got quite a pedigree in that uh, the story is... Uh, was originally come up with by none other than Jacques Tati himself. Uh-huh. So I think you're in for a treat. I, I And I picked it because it's just, it's a very gentle movie. And I think that after, you know, Cronenberg Day and mm-hmm. then the Black Phone, maybe it's time to go back to some more gentle movies for, for a little bit of a change of pace. I'm, I'm looking forward to these gentle movies. So definitely bring them on. All right. Well, listeners, if you want to watch along with us, you're totally welcome to do that. We're looking forward to talking about it on next week's show. But that does it for this week's show. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.